Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, two whole verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Some of you are going to be bothered by the fact that 8 ends in the middle of a sentence. 7 begins in the middle of a sentence. In your English translations, verses 1 through 10 are one, maybe one or two sentences in the Greek. It's just one long sentence. So there is no uh, starting not in the middle of a sentence in this section. So just going to have to deal with it. Every now and then when you're coming out of the grocery store, you might see a box on the ground with a sign on it. Usually the sign on this particular kind of box is drawn crudely by hand with a marker or perhaps a crayon. And the sign reads, Free Kittens. If you peek over the edge of the box, which you have to, you'll see just a big box of furry cuteness. Little kittens tumbling all over each other, and the little girl stands next to the box. Will you take one of my kittens home so they'll have a good home with you? And some of us are able to resist the temptation to take a kitten home. If you have your children with you, the, begin, the begging begins immediately. Can we have it, please? I promise to take care of it and clean up after it and feed it every day, and you won't even have to worry about it at all. I promise to totally take care of little Sebastian. You're like, we've, we've been standing by the box 30 seconds, and the cat has a name. So why do we resist the free kittens? Kittens are cute. They provide happiness to our children. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Why don't you want to take one of these cats home? Carpet cleaning, litter box cleaning, cat food on the kitchen floor, second only to Legos and causing pain at night. Assuming it's dry cat food, it's wet cat food, it's just scary. You have no idea what you... Yeah. Like, do I even want to turn the light on? Uh, ignorance is bliss at this point. Cat hair on your clothes, cat scratches on your hands, cleaning up the yard, and then cats grow, kittens grow up to be cats. And will it be a nice cat or will it be a normal cat? That's not right. I lost all the cat people. <laughs> Will the cat get along with the dog or with the other cats or with the lizard? Will the cat wake me up at night? Will I wake up at night with the cat sleeping on my face? I mean, all these things. So why do we take the kitten home? I mean, we sometimes do, don't we? Well, because we derive joy from having companionship, and maybe we're moved by compassion to help the little kid. She doesn't want to see her cats euthanized, maybe. And maybe the cat could be a good way for your children to learn responsibility. But here's, here's what it comes down to. We generally evaluate whether or not having this kitten in our home, the benefits of having this kitten in our home will outweigh the costs and difficulties, okay? It'll bring some joy. It'll be, bring some cuteness. It's good for the kids. But we know there's going to be difficulties with it too. So do the benefits outweigh the difficulties of taking this kitten home? And if the benefits outweigh the difficulties, then maybe we'll pick up uh, a little kitten for our home. Now, the important question we have for us today is not whether or not you should take kittens home after church, but this is the question I'm trying to illustrate. Why would God save us? Why would God save us? Turns out the Bible tells us why God would save us, and the reason it's really important for us to understand what the Bible is telling us about why God would save us is because if we don't understand what the Bible is telling us, we will tend to 
put onto God the same conditions we are tr- that are true of us. Why would we take a kitten home? The benefits outweigh the potential costs. So why would God save us? Well, obviously because the benefits must somehow outweigh uh, the cost of saving us. This puts all kinds of pressure on us as Christians. I've got to make sure I pay off for God. I mean, if He saved me like the way I might get a free cat and He's hoping to derive some joy and benefit from me, I certainly want to make sure I pay off for Him, don't I? I mean, what if I don't? Nothing could be more wrong than to assume that's how God operates. He doesn't operate like us in this regard. And the Bible makes it quite clear in Ephesians 7 and 8. The implications of the truth we discover about God are absolutely critical because whether we're seeking to know God for the first time or whether we have known God for some while, if we don't understand why God saves us, it's going to leave us in a world of problems in our walk with Him. So let's take a look. Why would God save us? Let me read again Ephesians 1.7. Can you find verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1? In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. If you're starting a new business and you're looking for investors, what are the kind of investors you want to find? Very simple, the kind with money. If you have lots of really good investors who are super interested in your business, who are broke, you've got bad investors. They're great people, not judging. They're just not good investors. Why would God save us? Because He alone could afford to save us. He alone could afford to save us. The price to saving us is significant and no one else could afford it. The Bible says this in Romans 3.23, a verse many of you have memorized, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many sinned? All. And how many of those sinners sinned so badly that they fell short of God's glory? All of them. So everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the question is then, what's the cost on that? What's the, what's the price? And the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 what the price is. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God, though, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages... Excuse me, the wages of sin, the price of sin, you say walk up to the, the, the sin booth and say, hey, how, how much to get in? Oh, just your life. And we all say, hey, that sounds a good deal. So we sin and we die. Death is nothing more than being separated from God forever. So we, we're, we all sin and the price of our sin is our death, both physically, we all die at some point. As one uh, author noted, the mortality rate of planet Earth is 100%. So we sin and the price of that sin is death. And then we see in Romans 5.8, again, another verse many of you are familiar with, God chose His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's the price of our sin? Death. What did Christ do? He died for us. It's it's an idea that He substituted Himself on our behalf. He died for us. So He's the only one who could afford our sin. 
I've said it this way before, but it's worth repeating. The price of your sin is easily paid by you. You just have to simply stay dead forever. And then the price is filled. The problem with that price is you cannot live long enough to enjoy the benefits of paying it because it takes forever to pay. What you need is someone who can die for you forever that doesn't take forever for them to die. Did you hear what I just said? Sounds like Willy Wonka there for a minute. (laughs) Only God could die and pay a forever price and come back to life and enjoy the benefits of it. An eternal being can die forever in just a few hours. It would take us forever to pay the price. Jesus, because He is God, could pay the price and also enjoy the benefits of it because He is God. Only God could afford it. But this is what's even crazier, more crazy either way, about God's redemption for us. God's redemption and His ability to afford it. Number one, it didn't cost Him. He, he, he didn't, even though he paid the price of his own life, he still has, he is still God. He came back to life. He still has all of the universe. He didn't spend it all. And in fact, he doesn't just barely redeem us. He redeems us according to the riches of his grace. He redeems us according to the value of his kingdom and, and his grace and his love, not merely according to our sin. You could think of it this way. Say you owe somebody a thousand bucks. And somebody pays your debt by giving you 10000 And you would say, well, why did you give me $10,000? My debt was only 1000 bucks." He said, listen, I don't even write checks for less than ten. I'm just that rich. I don't waste my time. The ink in my pen is worth more than that. And see, they have paid your debt not according to your debt, but according to their riches. And that's what God has done for us is He has paid our debt of sin, not merely according to our sin, which was big. He paid it according to the riches of His grace, which was bigger. The Old Testament hints at this in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a fantastic story if you're not familiar with it. 2 Kings chapter 6, if you want to turn there. I'm beginning in verse 24. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, had surrounded Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern ten tribes. At this point, Israel was divided into Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Syria has surrounded the capital of Israel, Samaria, and because of the besieging of the city, they are starving to death. There was a great famine. A donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Guess you guys aren't in the donkey head market. I don't. We'll just go with that's a lot for a donkey head. If you don't know how scarce food was, verse 26, the king of, of Israel is walking by on a wall and a woman cried out, help me king, I've got a son, my friend has a son, we agreed that today we'll eat my son and tomorrow we'll eat hers. We ate my son and she hid hers. Command her to give up her son so we can have a meal. I mean, they're starving. They are starving. And the king of, uh, of, of Syria is surrounding them. There's a significant famine. Elisha said this at the beginning of chapter 7, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour will sell for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel. How cheap is that? I know all of you are buying barley by the shekel. 
That's super cheap. That's like in the, the um, bulk bins at Winco, how cheap that is. How is that even possible that a city could go from uh, donkey's heads that cost what a house would cost to the finest of flour being super cheap? How could that even be possible overnight? And that's exactly what happens. In the middle of that night, the Syrians, through an act of the, of the Lord, were, were slaughtered, and they scattered and left their camp. Verse 3 of chapter 7 is incredible. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. They said to one another, if we go into the city, we're going to die. If we sit here, we're going to die. If we go to the camp of Syrians, we're going to die. What should we do? Let's go to the Syrians. Seemed like that they have the best options. My, my guess is they went to the Syrians thinking they would kill them quickly. In Samaria, they would have to starve to death. Sitting at the gate, they would have to starve to death or die of leprosy. If they go to the Syrian camp, they're just going to shoot them. It's a suicide mission. And they get over to the Syrians' camp, and it's been abandoned. They, were, they, they abandoned in such haste, they left everything in the camp. And so all night long, they had the buffet. Syrian, but they just ate and ate and collected goods, and they went and hid it, and they, uh, they, were, they were extended. They basically had inherited a lifetime supply of food and money. And finally, they said, you know what? This isn't right. We should tell the king of Israel about it. So they reported it to the people in Samaria. They sent out a scouting group, and they found out that the camp in uh, the Syrian camp had been abandoned. And then they sent out the collecting parties, and they collected all the food and all the money and all the goods. And by the end of the next day, a sea of fine flour sold for a shekel. The city had all the food they ever could have imagined. They had so much, in fact, that a normal price of flour was no longer appropriate. Only a discounted amount for flour would be appropriate. How much food did God give, the Samaria, give Samaria? Just enough? Just to survive another day? No, they, He didn't give them food in accordance with their hunger. He gave them food in accordance with His promise through His prophet. And it was too much food. It was more than they could have ever eaten. Much of it was likely going to go bad. Because He, he poured upon them His riches not merely what they needed. He pours upon them according to how He does it. When God shows up, He's not simply going to give us according to our sin. He gives us according to His grace. The lepers in this story end up being the important pieces of the narrative puzzle. The reason they found the riches of God's providence was because they finally got to the point of knowing they were dead. As long as they thought they could find a meal somewhere else, they were never going to go over to where God's salvation is like. But once they found out that they were dead, they may as well go see what's up out in the camp. They found God's salvation, and it was more than they could ever eat. Why does God save us? Because He alone could afford to save us, not merely scraping by. He alone could pour out on us the lavishness of His redemption through Christ alone, the riches of His grace measured out and poured out. God, I need a cup of grace. He gives us a gallon. It never ends. It never quits. He has a, an overflow of His desire to want to pour out His grace upon us. That moves us into verse 8. Why would God save? Number one, because He alone could afford to. And number two, we see in verse 8, because He alone 
would want to. He who alone would want to save us. Let's read again verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 1. That doesn't make any sense. I've got to read 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. He alone would, would lavish grace in this way because He alone would want to. Why would God want to lavish His grace on sinners and rebels? Because this is who God is. This is His nature. We, st- we discovered this summer when we were looking at 1 John that God in His nature is one who loves. We see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love, in this the love of God was made manifest or made known to us. God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God is, uh, God is love. He is the God of love. That's who He is by His nature. He has been living in loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. He wasn't cruising along for all of eternity and decided, you know what, I should start being more loving. What should I do? I think I'll invent man. No, th- this has always been God's nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect relationship, eternal relationship, as much love as could possibly be imagined because this is God's nature. He is one who loves. And because of his nature, he wants to pursue a relationship with us. In fact, he has always wanted to have a relationship with us, according to the author of Ephesians. In fact, he wants to pursue a relationship with us with such fervor that he does lavishly what is necessary, more than what is necessary, in order for us to have a relationship with him. He values a relationship with us to the same degree that he values expressing his love. His nature is expressed in his love and desire for a relationship with us. He alone would want to save us because he alone is the one, a true God, who has love to this degree. This is hard to see. Some of us have a view of God as God grumpy pants. And we've got to work tirelessly to keep him happy, and even then he's mostly grumpy. He seems happy with others, I guess. It's hard to tell. It's hard to see, but this is what the Word tells us about God. He is one who loves and loves to such a degree that when he saves, his desire is to save us lavishly. Look back at 2 Kings 6 again, this time in verse 8. Another story from the same chapter of 2 Kings where we see God saving well beyond what is needed. Plus a really cool story. This is earlier in the chapter than the story of the um, famine. The king of Syria was warring against Israel because that's what he did. He took counsel with his servants and he kept uh, invading Israel. And every time he would invade Israel, the king of Israel would know where the king of Syria was going to be and he would avoid his, um, he would avoid his traps. And he said, how is it that Israel is always knowing where I'm going to attack? And somebody told him, well, the, the prophet of God is telling him. 
And so the king of Syria came up with a good plan. Let's kill the prophet. So the king of Israel, uh, or I should say the king of Syria, uh, went down to uh, the, the prophet's hometown of Dothan. He sent his horses, his chariots, as verse 14 of 2 Kings 6, his great army, and they came by night and surrounded the whole city. So the prophet goes to bed that night, him and his servant. No big deal. They wake up the next morning. Their city, the little Dothan, is completely surrounded by the army of Syria. The servant of the man, that is the prophet, this is verse 15, arose early in the morning and went out and he saw the army with the horses and the chariots. And he said, oh, Master, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the prophet said this, verse 16 of 2 Kings 6, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The prophet says to, to his servant, you're not seeing this right. You're not seeing what's happening. The, the ones with us are more than them, so you don't have to worry about it. And the servant's like, um, okay. Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And this is what it says. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And there were more than the armies of Syria. He opened his eyes to the mass of the host of God's angelic army. How many angels would be required to kill the armies of Syria? Like one who was really tired and forgot his sword, could still do it. Did God send one? Well, what's he do? We have to understand, when we're, when we under, when we're, when we're in the Bible and we're, we're seeing how God works, this is how he works. You know, one angel could handle that. You know, but I got millions. Let's just blow it out of the water. And so he throws in more than is needed. He lavishes upon Elisha and his servant more than is needed. God with a word could have annihilated the armies. He wants to communicate, guys, I'm with you. I'm all in. I am fully there. When God saves us, when he redeems us through Christ, when he gives us forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, he's lavishing on us the riches of his grace. He, and it's not because he uh, doesn't have any other options. It's because he wants to. He loves to just pour out on us more than is needed. And you're saying, well, Greg, you have no idea the kinds of things I'm into. I said, guess what? You have no idea how this guy spends his grace. It's out of control. Most of us would think he's irresponsible. And thank God he just keeps doing it, Huh? He just pours it out over and over, and it just never quits. And he does this because this is what he is like. He wants us in the midst of having his grace lavished upon us to go, man, this guy is awesome. I cannot believe we have a God like this. I cannot believe that, that God who created the universe is like this. I mean, can you believe it? Nobody knows this. Do you realize that? Nobody knows this. I mean, ask the people in your church. Oh, wait, that's us. Ask, um, ask anybody. They'll say, God's not, God's not like that. I know what God's like, and He's not like that. No, read your Bible to find out what God is like. He lavishes His grace on us. It never quits, and He wants to do it. Now, as parents, we think this is irresponsible parenting. 
Dad, I want an allowance. How much do you need? I don't know, a hundred bucks? How's a thousand? I mean, we're going to ruin the kid, right? Money doesn't grow on trees. God says, really? Challenge accepted. He just, it just never quits. He just, you want grace? I got some. I got more. God, you don't understand. I really, I'm, just to be honest, between you and me, God, don't tell anybody else, I'm really good at sinning. I mean, I'm semi-pro. And he goes, I'm much better at grace. So I've seen your sin. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. Actually, I've seen better. My grace is sufficient. It will never run out. Nice try. The voice you're hearing in your head saying, you can outsend my grace is not me. It's either you or the enemy. It's not me. You can't do it. It's not possible. If you could outsend God's grace, what does that make you? It makes you God. I mean, it's, it's somewhat blasphemous to think you could sin your way out of God's grace. Because now all of a sudden you have more power than God does? And God says, no, 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 I don't think so. I will grace your pants off. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. Now that, now that it's come out, there's no retrieving it. God wanted, listen, not forced to, not no other options. God woke up one morning, and I know I'm being a little bit silly. God woke up, oh man, I get to give away a ton of my grace today. He wanted to overflow it onto us. It's what we needed, and he alone could afford it, and he alone would have the desire to do it. There is no one else like this. There is literally no one else like this that would know what we need, who could afford what we need, and in fact desired in his inner being to give us more than we needed. He knew what we needed. Why did God save? He alone could afford to, and he alone could want to. Verse 8b, finally, he alone could think to. Now, I know that's a little strange, but he alone could have the idea to. We think of the idea of Jesus dying on the cross, and in fact, because of our familiarity with it, we might, in fact, take it for granted. But we have to understand for the disciples at the time when Jesus was living, the idea of the cross seemed impossible. In Luke chapter 18, we uh, encounter Uh, Jesus, and he said to his disciples, Luke 18, verse 31, everything about the Son of Man, uh, everything written in the prophets is going to be accomplished. I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. I will be mocked. I will be spit upon. They will flog me, and they will kill me. And on the third day, I will arise. Verse 34, they understood none of these things. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Who do you say I am? And Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus confesses, he gets that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And just a few verses later in the same chapter, Jesus began to show his disciples he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter took him aside and said, I will never let that happen. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what I'm up to here, Peter. 
In the beginning of the, of the book of Acts, Jesus is telling them to wait for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them, giving them instructions, and then what do the disciples say? So is the kingdom coming? So, so it's now? I mean, no clue. They have no idea what Jesus is up to. They have no idea what, what God is up to. They just don't get it. Jesus came to save sinners through the cross. He came to save us through the cross and through the message of the disciples. We discover this in Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll make, your straight, make straight your paths. Do not, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. He's saying trust God in this. He knows what He's up to, and our own intuition is not going to be correct when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. Only God would have the idea to save sinners by sending His own Son to die. No one else would have had this idea. Only God would think of this. Only God is wise enough for this. Only God is loving enough for this kind of plan. Only God is full of grace enough for this kind of plan. What kind of people get saved through the cross? What kind of people is Jesus redeeming? Matthew 5 3 through 9. Let me just read it. You can listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The only way His plan works, according to Matthew 5, is if He does all the work and all we do is trust Him. The only way His plan works is if He does all the work and we do all the trusting for Him to lavishly pour out His grace on us, His grace that only He could afford to pour out. That's the only way His plan works. It was designed for us to only do the trusting. It was designed for Him to be the one who would give only that which He could give. One commentator made this observation. Bill Gates has, an asset, has assets of about $80 billion. I think that, from my here, that's how much a donkey's head costs. So with a fairly modest rate of return on $80 billion, his income is just over 100 bucks every second of every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So the observation with this in mind, if Bill Gates dropped a $100 bill on the ground, it would not be a good investment for him to take the time to pick it up. God, on the other hand, never stops stooping. He never stops pursuing. He never stops thinking, this is what I want to do. He never thinks it isn't worth it. He always wants to reach down to us. He could afford to. He wants to. And He is the one who thought of the way to reach us through Jesus. The problem is, is that sin has ruined our hearts. He reaches down to us and He offers to pick us up and save us. But His hand gets down to us and we say, no, 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 I think I got it. I think I'm almost out. Or actually, maybe even a more common way of thinking of this is, is he reaches down to save us, and we say, okay, God, just give me a little nudge, and I'm good. I'll, I, you do half the work. 
I'll do half the work. We're convinced we have life figured out. We just need God's help a bit. And this is precisely what Jesus means when in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about many are on the wide road. Few will find the narrow gate. And the wide road leads to destruction and the narrow gate leads to life. And many people think the narrow gate of finding God through Christ is narrow because it's hard to live a holy life and it's hard to be good and it's hard to be righteous. And the narrow gate is hard to get into because I mess up so badly. But if we understand rightly what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, we actually understand Jesus is saying that if we come to God and ask, He will hear us and answer. That God is one who wants to give to us life upon our trust in Him. There's no work to do. There's no brownie points to earn. Just ask God and and you're going to receive from God life and salvation. Jesus makes clear to us the difficult thing is not figuring out what righteous deed we have to do to find God. The reason the gate is narrow, the reason it's difficult, is because we find out we can't do anything. That to walk through that gate is a matter of trust. Okay, really, God, you give me everything just by asking? It doesn't make any sense. And for most people, it doesn't make sense. So they stay on the wide road of destruction of trying to earn their way to relationship to God. And the narrow gate is everybody is the four lepers who say, hey, we're dead. May as well go die quick. And they find life. We find life when we finally say, when God reaches down into that box that says free kittens. God, will you pick me up and just carry me? He said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll pick you up. I'll carry you the whole way. You can't be lavished upon with things you've earned. The only way for God to lavish His grace on you is to to refuse to try to earn it and to just receive it. I want to read a passage from a book I have enjoyed. The author's name is Jared Wilson, and the name of the book is Imperfect Disciple. It's 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 a book worth purchasing. Here's how he says it, beginning by quoting him. He says this, It turns out, actually, that, get this, Jesus is looking specifically for people who can't get their act together. Paul's sense of hopeless exasperation reaches a crescendo in verse 24 of Romans 7, quoting Romans 7, 24, Jared Wilson says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? End quote of Romans The author of Romans feels caught, trapped, like a corpse of his old life is still hanging on to his ankle and he can't move on. He's tried pulling himself up by his bootstraps, but he got him tangled around his neck and now he's choking to death. This is exactly the kind of self-despair Jesus is listening for. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says in Romans 7.25. You can almost hear him panting like a guy just pulled out of the water drowning. Every day I wake up in Romans chapter 7, every dadgum day. My alarm goes off and I sit up in bed and my uncoffeed consciousness groggily gearing up for sins. Sins of omission and sins of commission. I'm engaged in the flesh before I even get my feet on the carpet. 
And yet right there beside me, laid out like the day's outfit for school, are new mercies. Romans 8 lies right there, spooning Romans 7 in a full-size bed with no wiggle room. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How do we get out of this mess? We can't. God does what we cannot do. So while the storm of Romans 7 rages inside us, the truth of Romans 8 has us safe and sound. Within the spiritual ecosystem of God's savoring sovereignty, in fact, our struggle is like a little squall stirred up in a snow, go- snow globe, I should say. Final paragraph. God is collecting all these little storms. He is doing something beautiful with us and even in us and through us. This is the great light that overcomes the shadow world of Romans chapter 7. It is the good news for all of us who can't get our act together. We're exactly the kind of people God is looking for. We're exactly the kind of people God is using. We're exactly the kind of people God loves. End quote. You know, with grateful hearts, I think we should get off the wide road of having our act together. Christians who have it all dialed in. Instead, let's find the end of ourselves and cry out to God again this morning with grateful hearts, with outstretched arms, who will save me from this body of death? And God said, there is now therefore no condemnation.